please remain standing for the reading of the gospel this morning. From Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, What should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and these things you have prepared, whose whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. The gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated. It's good to see all of you here this morning as we gather to worship our good God. So I'll begin this morning with a story from my own life. When I was 15, I was riding my bike home from school and I'd always take the back way home. We lived on a bu- busy street, so I'd, I'd ride through small neighborhoods and small subdivisions. But then I had to cross Kennedy Avenue. And on this particular day, I decided not to cross at an intersection, but to cross directly in front of my house. And so I looked both ways, and I started to cross the street. I was on my bike, and I was hit by a car. A neighbor, the neighbor across from us, saw it happen, and she told mom that she saw me crawl out from under the front of the car. I don't remember very much of this, but I was completely okay. My bike was bent up a little bit, but dad fixed it, and I continued to use it. Now, I told this story to my kids a few weeks ago, and I told them this story for a reason. It's because one of them was talking about taking their bike out, and it was kind of dim and dark, you know, like it is these days, and it was icy, and I really wanted to demonstrate that biking, even when you wear a helmet, I wasn't, it was the 90s, but even when you wear a helmet, (laughs) and you do look both ways, it can be dangerous. I I had a reason to tell the story, it wasn't just random. And And this is one of the things that's really important about stories, It's important to think about when and why they're told. And it's the same with Jesus' parables. When we hear a parable or read a parable in Scripture, it's important to look at what happened before Jesus told the parable. And then what does he say afterwards? What's the context, in other words? So the parable you just heard, when it's taken out of context, it's often used as a stick with which to hit rich people metaphorically speaking. Uh, And you can do this if you don't emphasize the context. You can take it out of the big story and use it as a moral tale to emphasize the greed of the wealthy. 
It can even be used to teach against uh, having insurance or investing or saving for retirement. It can be really made into an overly simplistic moral tale. Riches bad, poverty good. But we have to remember that when Jesus is speaking, in the context of which he's speaking, about 90% of the people living in the first century lived from hand to mouth. They were very, very poor. I don't think this is a parable about riches. It's a parable about greed. And none of us, rich or poor or anything in between, none of us are immune to greed. So we begin in the setting, the context. So someone comes in the crowd. He comes to Jesus for adjudication of a family dispute. He's like, Rabbi, Rabbi, uh, pay attention here. Please tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Like, notice that he's telling Jesus what he thinks the outcome should be, right? He's already decided how it should be. Like, his older brother isn't dividing the family inheritance in the way that he thinks it should go. And biblical and traditional law taught that the eldest son would receive a double portion and and the other sons afterwards would receive a single portion. Now, that might not sound fair to us, but that's how it was in the time. And we don't know this exact situation, but I'm guessing this guy just wants what's considered his normal fair share, his single portion. And he's like, teacher, my brother's hogging the inheritance. Tell him to share. Maybe parents have heard this kind of thing before. The injustice, though, the injustice he's experiencing is real. But, and this is so much like Jesus. Jesus doesn't adjudicate. He doesn't even address the question directly. Instead, he says, man, that you could translate that word friend or man, man, who made me the judge between you two? It kind of sounds like the brother is with him. They've come to see Jesus together. And in the midst of the squabble, the younger one gets to speak first. But this is the thing about Jesus. The thing is with Jesus, when you ask him a question, he knows what's really in your heart. And Jesus looks at the situation, which is framed by a desire for justice. It's framed by a desire to follow the law, to be equitable and fair. And what he sees is greed. Now, we could ask, is it the greed of the younger brother wanting fairness? Or is it the greed of the older brother refusing to share? Both, maybe. We don't really know. But the text continues. And and Jesus said to them, And then he tells a story. Who's he telling the story to? I kind of wonder that. Like, he says he told them. Who's them? Is it the brothers? Is Is it the disciples? Is it the crowd? Is it us? Yeah, all of those. And Jesus begins, he prefaces his story with a thesis. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. And then he tells this parable. I want you to know that this is a very funny parable, and you didn't laugh when I read it. <laughs> but it is funny. It's, it's about someone with an abundance of possessions. There's this man, this rich man, Jesus says, and this man has land that produces plenty. Note what produces the wealth, the land, not the man. 
It's his land. And in this time, it would have been his fertile land and his tenant farmers who did all the work. That's how it was in these days. And this man, this man has a big problem. I, I don't know what the barns looked like in that day, but here we see some silos full of grain and then a pile of grain outside of them, right? This is a modern interpretation. But whatever he has to store his grain, it's not big enough. It is not big enough for his ginormous crops. Now, in our, in our modern language, we might call this a, a sort of first world problem. These are problems that you have when the basics are already covered, right? First world problems might be things like the wine being the wrong year, or the maid cleaning the bathroom and so you have to wait to shower, or like when you only get accepted into one Ivy League school, right? Those are all kind of like first world problems. So he starts to monologue about this problem. He talks to himself a lot. He's like, huh, I have a big problem. And then he, then he has a plan. Ah, I have a plan. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll big, build bigger ones, and then I'll have plenty of room to store all my grains and all my goods. And this is where it's really funny, because to most of Jesus' listeners, and remember, 90% of them are super, super poor living every single day of every single week of every single month of every single year of their, their short life on this little planet. This, this is a ridiculous story. It's ridiculous sounding to them. It's sort of like maybe how those super yachts sound to us, right? To run a super yacht, I mean, this is a ballpark figure, costs about $200,000 a week about $60 million a year to just to maintain one, okay? That sounds really ridiculous to us. Sort of out of our imagination's capacity. This is, this is crazy, crazy rich town. And so this is quite ridiculous to most of the original hearers. Like no one listening to Jesus' story, or at least very few people, would ever, ever be this rich. Rich enough to tear down perfectly good silos and build new ones. Everyone is laughing, probably, as Jesus tells the story. It's funny. Who does this? And then the man continues his monologue. Maybe he sighs with anticipation, imagining the future. And then this is what I'll do. I'll say to myself, self, that's really what it says. Self, you have grain for years. Take it easy. Margaritaville. Eat, drink, and be merry. And then he pats himself on the back because there's like no one else around. And he, he's like, self five. I got a plan. Problem solved. This is ridiculous. Jesus is speaking in an extremely communal culture. The fact that this guy isn't thinking about or talking to other people about his first world problem of too many crops, it's very unusual. He doesn't mention anything about an inheritance for his kids or helping the poor or even using his riches as a celebration. Instead, it's all about him. Eat, drink, and be merry. It's singular verbs. There's no invitation for others. It's me, me, me. But then someone else does speak, and it's God. And I think that this is the only time in any of Jesus' parables where God literally speaks within the parables. God speaks to the man. First, he calls him a fool. You fool. Tonight, your life, your soul, 
your soul will be demanded from you. Then who will get in your, what's in your barns? Hmm? Because the reality is, is that God is the real owner of this man's life and what's in his barns. God demands this man's life back. And in the parable, God's words echo Jesus' warning. Life does not consist in abundance of possession. This man has an abundance of possessions, and then his life is gone. That's not what holds his life. God does. Because just as he can lose his possessions, so can he lose his life. They're not his. And then Jesus teaches what this parable means. So is he who treasures up for himself and is not rich toward God. Rich toward God. That's something to ponder, isn't it? Rich toward God. I, I actually have been thinking about this all week, and I, I told my husband yesterday, I don't actually even know what rich toward God means. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but I think part of it is an open-handedness toward God. Here's a story that might help us understand it. Um, This Christmas time, my daughter got on her bike. I I do let my kids ride bikes. (laughs) And um, rode up to a a neighborhood about a mile away from us and went to a store and purchased a gift for for me. She bought me some new gloves with her babysitting money. She didn't have to do that. I didn't need those gloves. They remind me of her. They show her her generosity toward me. You know, I I pay for everything for her, right? (laughs) But she was rich toward me. So what does it look like for us to be rich toward God? Because what we do with our money shows where our heart is. God doesn't need our money. But when we choose to live generously, it is an opening of our whole selves to who God is. Now, let's go back to to Jesus' story here. I I really wonder how those brothers responded to this parable. I hope, this is conjecture, that that they were both there, and they probably were both struggling with greed, and this story helped them to set their priorities straight. I do hope so. Because what Jesus is saying is this, it's not what's in your barns or how big they are that matters. It's how you approach it recognizing that this harvest, this grain, this money, your inheritance, your very life, it's all at the mercy of God. Be rich toward God, the giver of all good gifts. It's already his. It's already his. He can take it back just like he does this man's life. You know, we like to think we can control these things. We like to think we can control with our our planning and our scheming. Ultimately, we can't because we're not the ones who oversee it all. All of us, rich and poor and middle class and and all the places in between, and all of us are rich if we consider the state of the world, right? All of us are rich. We can all be greedy. And I wonder if often we're greedy because fundamentally, deep down, we're afraid. We're afraid to lose security. We're afraid to lose power or prestige. We're afraid to downsize. We're afraid to look like we failed. So we we grab and we grab and we build and we build and we build because we want that security. And because of that, we're stingy toward God. 
We, we muscle our way to control everything we can. But the truth of the gospel of Christ is the foundation that God is in control, not us. We like to think we're in control, right? I do. Totally, right? We like to manage things, and, and so we manage our money and manage our property and manage our pantry and manage our careers and our children, and we manage it all, and we have volition and free will, self-five. But when it comes down to it, we have way less control than we like to think. For those of you who studied Ecclesiastes with me this past year, like this is a highlight of the author. We can work hard and have it all go to nothing. It's not always fair. Good men will sometimes die for no apparent reason while a dictator lives on at least for a while, right? We have way less control than we think. And even though what Jesus warns against is greed, I do think that so much of our grief Our greed often stems from our worry, from our anxiety. And this rich man, although he's greedy, he's also riddled with anxiety. Anxiety about what he's going to do with his crops. And this, I think, is his fatal mistake. He excludes God from his anxiety. He doesn't share his worry with God. How would this story have ended, I wonder, if, if this man would not have monologued but instead, would he would have prayed, God, I have these amazing crops. It's so much food. What do I do with them? I, I think this would have changed the story completely. It would have ended in a party, not a death. I, I was reading a book by Alan Fadling this week. He, he leads a Christian ministry that focuses on rest. And he writes, anxiety equals care minus God. He continues, worry has a way of blinding me to the measureless faithfulness of Christ. Worry focuses on my shortcomings or challenges and doesn't notice the far greater realities of God's goodness, power, and love. He's right. When we have the gospel vision of Jesus, we look forward with hope, not with anxiety, because we know God. And we look backwards with thanksgiving, not regret, because we can recognize what God has done. Even that story I told my kids about the bike, right? I use that story to tell them as a warning story. Be careful. Life is dangerous. But what if I reframed this? What if, what if I said, God cared for me that day? What if I framed it from God's care? God protected me from the wheels of that car, from being crushed. Somehow, for some reason, God looked at that weird 15-year-old with her bike from Walmart and her orange shirt, and God cared for her. Looking back with Thanksgiving is totally different, different context. And I really think that's the posture Jesus is leading his disciples to as he continues teaching. Here's why we need to think about the whole context of this parable. I'll continue reading from chapter 12 in Luke. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? 
And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your lifespan? If then you are not able to do so small a thing as that, why worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying. For it is the nations of the world that strive after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Jesus' application for this parable is for us not to worry. Don't worry about food or or clothing. There is more to life than that. And then Jesus uses all these illustrations from nature like we sang about at the beginning of the service. Look around at the birds. They don't worry. And if you do worry, is it going to give you more time on earth? (laughs) Will it add money to your bank account? Will it add food to your fridge? No. Worry has no benefit. And the flowers, they're, they're so beautiful. They're more beautiful than the most glorious king. And if God made them and works in them, what about you? You are so much more precious to God. You and your sad little worries. Don't worry. Think on God's kingdom. Because when we focus on God's kingdom, we are focusing on God's control, not ours. Sometimes we call this God's providence. By that, I mean God's rule and reign over the whole world. And in God's providence, he he can take things that are good, and he can even take things that humans intended for bad and work them for good. And the gospel vision of Jesus' teachings here is that God is good. And so we shouldn't worry about our inheritance or think that life consists of our possessions. No, the God is that created the universe and each bird and flower, each blade of grass, also created us and cares for us. And this is the kingdom of God. And this is the gospel that Jesus preached, that God rules now in Christ with a deep, deep kindness, a deep care, a deep concern. And he invites us to take our worries, take our anxieties, and share them with God. And when we live in this trusting relationship, there is security. Our experiences, our sufferings, they might be frustrating, and they are real, right? They're frustrating and real and agonizing and maddening. But God is still king, and God is still good. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. And this gives us a reason to relinquish our worries. As N.T. Wright says in his commentary on this chapter, relax into the knowledge that God is in control. And so we can stop talking to ourselves, stop monologuing, and start talking to God about our anxieties. You know, I I did not get chosen to to preach on this passage today because I'm awesome at obeying this. I want you to know that. (laughs) Right? Um, I, I, I struggle with this. I sense insecurity often. I I do not have this one down. God is still working on me. And and this is a really close-to-home passage for me personally right now. 
this week, after uh, over two years of prayer, my husband resigned from his job without another job lined up. It was the right thing. We sensed God's leadership. But it is really hard not to be anxious, and probably for me more than for Justin. I, I have a tendency to monologue, just like the guy in this parable. Will he get another job? When? I, I catastrophize. Right now, I actually don't like how this story is going. It plays into a lot of insecurities I have. But God's invitation for me is, is to stop talking to myself about this and instead talk to God open-handedly, to invite God into my care for my husband and my household and God's future for us. And a little bit, I feel kind of like I'm crawling out from under that car again. It's really uncomfortable. Life is dangerous. But God is good. So I ask you, each of you, what are you worried about? Where is your anxiety What are you monologuing about and not sharing with God? Are are you holding tightly to your worries? Because somehow deep down you think, this is how I'm going to get another hour in my life if I think about it really hard. (laughs) Are, Are you focusing on these things and not the riches of the kingdom of God? We could make long lists bigger than that giant yacht of what we're worried about. But I'm going to invite you into a time of prayer to pray into Jesus' words that I just read. And this is embodied prayer, right? Jesus has come for our whole self, body and heart and soul. So I I would like you to participate with me in an embodied prayer. It's not weird, I promise. But hold your hand up, please. And we're all going to do this so no one feels weird. Hold your hand up. What are you worried about? See it in your hand. You see it? Is it, is it your future personally? Maybe, maybe you're worried about a sickness that you have or someone else has. Maybe you're ruminating over something you've done in the past that you just, not, you just can't get, you're worried about it. How is it going to end? So hold it. Hold it up and hold it up to God. Take it out of your mind and put it in your hand. We're going to remember together in prayer God's sovereign rulership, his providence in our lives his providence and participation in the world, and be rich toward God rather than holding it all in. So I invite you to pray in your heart as I pray right now. Jesus, you said, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Jesus, we have worries We are naming them now before you with a desire to obey. Jesus, please take our worries. They are too large for us. They do not benefit us. But they are not too large for you to take from us. Jesus, you said, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barns, yet God feeds them. Jesus, this week, when we see the birds flying in the cold winter air or the geese sleeping outside with their heads under their wings, remind us of your care for us. Remind each person here that they are image bearers of God, deeply precious to you. Lord, remind each of us of our worth to you. 
Jesus, you said, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you little trusts? Jesus, we are people of a little trust. It's small. Would you grow our faith? And in your spirit, remind us when we're worrying, when we are monologuing about our problems, whether they're imagined or real, so that we can lift up our worries to you, Lord. May we be characterized here at Hinsdale Covenant as people who lift up each other in prayer, who lift up our worries together, who submit them to you rather than holding tightly in greed. Lord, grow us into the people you want us to be people who seek your kingdom and your righteousness. And we pray this in your gracious and kind name. Amen. We'll be participating in a song now based on this passage. So let us stand and continue in worship together.